Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, the Northern Agenda's Westminster editor, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be digesting Rishi Sunak's budget and its implications for the North. Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury and Sunderland MP Bridget Phillipson talks me through Labour's pre-budget prep. We obviously do a lot of preparation ahead of time, but obviously things did rather change a bit given that um, uh, Keir Starmer rather unfortunately tested positive for COVID just before he was set to do the the budget announcement. So Rachel Reeves had to step in and gave that speech and I thought with, you know, I thought she did a tremendous job, especially when you consider it was with 45 minutes notice, um, gave a really strong response for Labour. And local democracy reporter Charlotte Green tells my colleague Rob Parsons about the five things we need to know about local politics in Oldham, a town and borough bidding to reinvent itself from its industrial past with racial tensions running high. Potentially we're moving towards more of a, a, a politics of pragmatism amongst people that they just want good local services and really who you vote for in your, in your local elections doesn't really affect that too much if as a council you can't stop those cuts coming down from central government. But before we get into all that, I'm lucky enough to be joined by a stellar cast of journalists from across the north to pick over this week's budget. We have the Liverpool Echo's political editor, Liam Thorpe, the Manchester Evening News's political editor, Jen Williams, and the North East editor of Business Live, Graham Whitfield. I'll perhaps start up in the North East and work my way down. Uh, Graham, there was a lot of talk ahead of Wednesday that this would be a budget to level up the country. Uh, were you impressed by what you heard? Uh, ish. Uh, you know, there was obviously some things there and there was there was money up here for a couple of schemes in Newcastle that were much needed, a couple in Sunderland County Durham. And some of them were just a bit odd. You know, if you look on Teesside, there was money for Yarm and Eaglescliff, which has a nice little villages on the edge of Stockton and not for Billingham, which is the place in the part of Stockton you would imagine would need levelling up much, you know, much tougher place. Walton Bridge, which goes from nowhere to nowhere in County Durham. If anyone knows where it is, I'll, I'll give you five pounds. <laughs> it's lovely, by the way, but it doesn't go anywhere. Got money, and the Tyne Bridge doesn't. The Tyne Bridge, if anyone's crossed it recently, is an absolute disgrace. You know, so I think the criticism of leveling up for for as soon as anyone said the term is no one quite knows what it means, and I think we're probably further away from knowing what it means after the first hundred leveling up bids came out. So yes and no. The stuff that was there was good, but I don't still know quite what levelling up actually means. And Jen, what is the feeling in Manchester towards the autumn statement? I mean, I saw some positive comments from Andy Burnham. What, what, what did you make of it? I think it was a bit of a mixed bag, wasn't it? Because it isn't necessarily the budget that you would at first sight expect to see from itself proclaimed Thatcherite, as as Rishi Sunak is, and, and clearly some of his backbenchers are probably not particularly happy that we now seem to be a kind of high-tax, high-spend economy, which then makes it quite difficult for, for Labour to attack. I think in many respects, it probably felt more like a Boris Johnson budget. They've obviously gone out and, and spent some money. I think when you dig beneath the surface of it, it very it's all relative, isn't it? It depends on context. It depends on what you're looking at. So, you know, clearly... The NHS is getting this huge spending boost and also takes up this huge and rising proportion of public spending when at the same time you've got departments that have been more or less unprotected like local government that are 
are seeing only just the kind of slightest uptick uh, on the graph in terms of the money that they're going to be getting. And then at the same time, you've got this sort of sprinkling of levelling up projects that, as Graham says, you know, it's not entirely clear how they've been chosen or what the criteria are. I think the thing that struck me about the ones in our area, and I dare say it's the same in your areas too, is that Michael Gove talked a lot at Tory party conference about um, civic pride being an important part of their vision for levelling up. And if you look at the projects that have been chosen things like Berry Market which is a you know a huge source of kind of local pride in Berry and was in, in in bad need of investment you know the Spinners Mill in 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 Lee they seem to have picked things that are very much going at that sense of sense of local pride and so on the one hand you can completely see why it works as a political thing because at the next election they're going to be able to turn around and say like look at that like that was that was us and and frankly if you're in Radcliffe and you've just been given a new community hub do you really care what the politics is that sits behind it you're getting a new community hub and and Radcliffe has been neglected by successive governments and arguably by the council over a really long period of time so you can completely see the politics of it does it sort of fit into any kind of coherent policy or underlying strategy as Graham says, I don't think I'm a, a kind of any any clearer on that. And I think just the other thing that I would mention is that if we're talking about whether kind of poorer places are going to be better off, if you look at the forecasts, wage growth is still projected to be growing very slowly indeed over the next few years, despite the increase in minimum wage and uh, and the measures that were taken to boost, I say boost, but replace some of the cuts that have been made to universal credit. If you look at a place like Oldham, actually wages have still not recovered from pre the 2008 crash and are some way off. And are only projected to kind of, you know, if nationally they're only projected to be kind of climbing very incrementally over the next few years, then what does that mean for a place like Oldham that's already so far, so far behind? So I would say, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of perhaps a bit of a, an unusual budget for what you would expect, but definitely a mixed picture. And I'm, I'm not sure I've come away with it with a sort of coherent sense of how exactly places that they're talking about in Greater Manchester are fundamentally going to be going to be levelled up. And that's before we get on to trains, which I'm sure we will come back to. <laughs> and in Liverpool, Liam, did a promise of a Beatles attraction and saving the ferry across the Mersey have uh, Scousers singing Rishi's name? Was, was, that, was that it, yeah? Um, not quite. I think if you want to just, you know, if you want to do something to kind of put Scousers off an announcement, then, then make the Tories announce it, basically. And with respect, Nadine Dorries as well, because she, she's not universally popular in Liverpool, despite being, being born here. Um, I think in some ways the, the the Beatles announcement kind of encapsulated some of the, the the issues with this budget. You know, it was here's a here's a little shiny announcement for you for Liverpool. Oh, what does Liverpool need? Oh, the Beatles. Everyone loves the Beatles. Let's chuck you know chuck you two million quid for that. That's certainly how it came across. Now there is a lot more to it than that. Um, um, and actually, when when Rishi Sunak made that announcement, it kind of set a few things in motion. Um, I think the council here and the city region. We're, we're planning a much bigger announcement about what this actually means. And to be fair, it is a lot more than another Beatles museum. It's much, it's this, the two million quid is actually to kind of develop a business plan for what could be a much bigger facility. And it's all about, while it will have a kind of strong Beatles theme because, you know, it's the Beatles, it's going to be much more about sort of harnessing creative talent in the, in the city, bringing forward kind of new facilities for, for aspiring musicians and things like that. That's, that's the background to it. But it didn't play well to just hear the chances sort of say, here's here's a couple of million quid for, you know, for the Beatles. And, and naturally people just automatically go, well, we've got bigger issues than that. We don't, you know, this isn't this isn't what's going to solve Liverpool's problems. 
I think I'd, I'd agree with what Jen said. When you look sort of behind some of the shinier announcements, you know, Liverpool, Liverpool Walton is the most deprived constituency in, in the country. When you look at that universal credit announcement, there's a, a huge number of people who won't be benefited from that. The same people who were benefiting from the from the UC uplift that would now be sort of essentially been abandoned, in my opinion, in, in this in this part of the budget. So it's been a weird one for Liverpool because, you know, I'm so used to writing about how we got absolutely nothing except for the ability to raise more council tax on our are already struggling residents. You can't argue that that we've done better this time around. We've got £700 million for, for public transport uh, improvements, which is something Steve Rotherham has obviously been been battling for, along with Andy Burnham and others. You know, that's not to be sniffed at, but let's put it in context. It's no more than is, is needed. I mean, in fact, there's a lot more that's needed. You know, it's it's many years now since George Osborne was promising us Northern Powerhouse. And and frankly, the public transport situation in, in Liverpool City region and, and across the north is has been wanting for a long time. So I don't I, I don't think people are sort of like incredibly grateful. They're relieved that we're finally getting some kind of acknowledgement. And I think it, I, I would give credit to Steve Rotherham because he kind of gets a fair bit of stick for for being seen to work with the Tory government, which is a difficult thing on Merseyside. It really is, and understandably so. But he's always been of the of the opinion that you, you must challenge them, but you have to work with them because they're the government of the day. And if he hadn't been doing that, then then you know Liverpool and the city region might have been suffered another setback again, um, whereas it actually as it stands, things are looking a bit rosier, certainly on the public transport section, which we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to. But just, uh, you know, my, my test of any budget, particularly in a place like Liverpool, is does it do enough to, to, to alleviate poverty? Will it do enough to stop people going to food banks, you know, this winter? And with the, the way that costs are rising and, and those people, who, as I say, have been sort of, in my opinion, missed out in terms of universal credit, I don't think it does do enough for that. You've both mentioned uh, public transport there. We obviously had a lot of kind of pre-briefed announcements um, on cash for various kind of cities across our regions. But there was, you know, a glaring uh, emission there. You know, this stuff around HS2, around Northern Powerhouse Rail, there was a big gap in the budget there. What, what is your feeling? What are you hearing about this? I mean, is, is, there, is there any fear in, in the North that this is going to be axed in the, in the forthcoming integrated rail plan? Yeah, all the noises that I'm hearing from the system here are expecting that an enormous amount of what Northern leaders had hoped to get out of it may not materialise, that there will probably have to be something that calls itself Manchester to Leeds in terms of a Northern Powerhouse rail line, because that has been specifically committed to over and over and over again by the Prime Minister. The question will be what that Northern Powerhouse rail line looks like and whether it even actually is really a Northern Powerhouse rail line. What leaders wanted was a brand new line from Manchester to Leeds, and it had to go via Bradford, which is not properly connected at the moment. And that was just an absolute stipulation on their part. There is a worry that in a worst case scenario, you actually just end up with the current Manchester to Leeds line electrified, which is something that they promised to do years and years ago and still haven't done. Or that, you know, that you kind of do get a new line, but that it's a kind of cut price. It doesn't go via Bradford. or uh, And I don't think there's any real expectation that the underground station at Piccadilly, which is what was proposed here, is going to come off. And the issue with the underground station is that originally the plans for the HS2 station at at Piccadilly had been done before Northern Powerhouse Rail had been planned in, so it was going to be a terminus, essentially. And what Manchester then said once Northern Powerhouse Rail came along was like, well, this is stupid, Like, let's make it so that you can just go straight through. And there's always been huge reluctance at national level to accept that as an option. And, you know, the alternative is potentially sticking a massive great big viaduct 
out across Ardwick. Nobody really seems to quite know exactly how how that would work. So there's kind of there's lot you can see how the government might out might announce something and dress it up, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that that it's what's being asked for. And that's before you get to do you get a Liverpool to Manchester line out of it? I think that there's a kind of widespread expectation that the answer will be no, and that they won't necessarily say you're never getting this. They just won't announce it. You know, they won't confirm it. They'll kick it down the road. Things won't get cancelled. They just won't get signed off. It's all well and good improving connections within Merseyside. And and that is needed. Although I would say that actually the Mersey Rail itself, which we're about to receive a a new fleet of 500 million pound fleet of very modern trains on the Mersey Rail network. The Mersey Rail itself is, is pretty good, actually. It's pretty popular. It's pretty efficient. Where the problem lies is getting to other to the other cities. And for Liverpool's economy to grow in, in the way that, that Manchester has, what it really needs to do is have much better connections to the likes of Manchester so people can go between the two and, and work between the two. And that's that's holding Liverpool back at the moment. So as Jen says, you know, we, we don't have the advantage of having Boris Johnson already committed to, to Liverpool, to Manchester, uh, which he did do with Manchester to Leeds. So it feels like we're, we're kind of right at the back of the queue on that one. And in some ways, you know, this big, big announcement about funding for public transport here is great, but that's for people who already live and work here. We we need we need Liverpool desperately needs to bring more people in, more people in those kind of higher higher wage jobs and keep graduates here who might want to go between Manchester and Liverpool and onto the other cities of the north. So yeah, no doubt that would be an absolutely huge setback um for Liverpool. I think that situation Liam's talking about in Liverpool is the same at all of those northern cities that are kind of not in that heartland of, of Manchester Leeds you know so it's the same in Hull it's the same in Newcastle it, it, it's probably to an extent I would imagine Sheffield that I don't know it that well that uh, you know if you're not in that M62 corridor very tightly drawn you know you miss out the, the thing that adds to the frustrations up here is of course that we didn't even get any money for our buses in that announcement in the budget because we've got this strange situation there even though we have a mayor in the north of Tyne the transport authority covers all of what's called the old LA7 up here so that's sort of North of Tyne bit and the and the central bit of County Durham Sunderland South Tyneside and Gateshead, so uh, we're going cap in hand to this really tiny little budget for the, that's left for those places that haven't got mayors, even though we've got a mayor. So um, yeah, it's a, it's it's not a, a great situation for the northeast. Is there any movement on that at all? Because you had the obviously a Teesside MP and uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury Simon Clark was saying the day before the budget that. He would like to see uh, Labour councils up in the northeast get the house in order, so uh, more of this cash can be passed over. I mean, I know this this debate's been running for years now, but I mean, is there any movement towards a, a, a northeast authority? I think there is, albeit amusingly, given what Simon Clark said, and Simon Clark was actually was part of the uh, discussions in his previous role. I think he was a DCLG in, in a ministerial role there, wasn't he? Amusingly, it appears to be Northumberland, which is Tory-led, which is now the one dragging its feet. I think that they don't mind being part of North of Tyne, where they're one of three against you know a couple of Labour. The LA7, or it might be LA6, because Durham might go off to do its own thing, would be very Labour-dominated. So it seems to be the Conservative authority in Northumberland who are dragging out, which might get us back. We might reform Tyne and Weir. We might get the band back together for Tyne and Weir, which, um, you know, back to the 70s almost, might become a thing, uh, which would which would make a lot of sense. You know, Tyne and Weir makes a lot of sense, whereas the north of Tyne is kind of a, just the three that were left after the, you know, some of the south of Tyne uh, through that dolls out the pram in the previous Devo deal. So there's a lot could happen, but there seems to be any number of people putting their button brakes on it. So I, I wouldn't want to make a call either way. I, when I spoke to the Sunderland council leader a couple of weeks ago, he was very much in favour saying that thing that they always say, which is, I want to see the money first. I want to see what it means. So until the one side's got to show some faith, I think, and, and um, 
but it's a very unsatisfactory situation up here where you've got Tees Valley getting a lot of money and this place that's got more than twice as you know a size population getting nothing. On the public transport thing as well I think the whole way particularly in Greater Manchester the way that that's played out is quite interesting politically because you know you had um, I mean it's definitely interesting if you're watching Andy Burnham which I seem to spend a very large portion of my time doing because he you know he went down to Labour Conference and essentially used public transport delivery as a as a kind of pretty blatant pitch to be leader of the Labour Party where he kind of stood at the side and said like I'm already in power look what I can deliver I'm delivering I'm Labour in power and then came back up to Manchester and basically went to the Tories and said exactly the same thing and said if you give me a billion pounds to do public transport then I can help you win the next election actually because you know you'll have something that you can point at because I will have delivered it and that money came forward pretty quickly and you know a billion pounds sounds like a lot of money if you actually put it back in context, a few people have said to me, it's not actually necessarily that much more than we've had previously out of similar funding rounds in the past. In fact, it was, it's less per year than we had a we had a decade long run where we were getting 300 million a year. This works out at 200 million a year. It, it's not actually going to give us an extended tram network. It doesn't give you another tram line. All it gives you is the money is to build up the business case for a couple of new tram lines. So, you know, it, it's actually debatable whether it's quite as generous as it looks, but politically it really suits Andy Burnham to go out there and say, look, I got you a billion quid. And it really suits Rishi Sunak to say, look how generous I am. But actually, fundamentally, it's less exciting than transport bids that I've seen in the uh, transport settlements than than I've seen in the past. Depending on your perspective on it, because it will it will provide cycle lanes, and there's also cycling and walking routes, and there's also the politics of that too. Because the thing about cycling routes is like the Boris bikes thing; it's quick to deliver and it's visible, and it's not that expensive. So, you know, without being cynical about it, obviously, it's great to have cycle routes. It's great to have active travel but from a political perspective it's also easy wins both easy wins exactly that both boris johnson's government can point out but ironically also andy burnham can point out can point out too so i I just find the politics of it all really fascinating It's, it's worth adding that we and i imagine possibly you guys have also got a separate bid into the bus service bus services yeah fund which is basically what will what would pay for greater manchester to have its sort of re-regulated network over the last five years and the the stumbling block there will be is uh will be if the government doesn't provide the ongoing subsidy that we would need to provide those london style fares which is you know the big promise that andy burner has hitched his hitched his wagon to so if government doesn't stump up that cash then actually those one pound fifty hop on hop off fares maybe thrown into doubt so that that's the, the story's not over i think on in that respect well we'll leave it there and i'll say a big thanks to jen liam and graham for joining us on this week's episode now let's go to bridget phillipson for her thoughts on this week's announcements Bridget, thank you for joining us on the Northern Agenda podcast. It's been quite a busy week for you and the Shadow Treasury team, I imagine. I wondered if you could perhaps start by just explaining to our listeners what it's like preparing for a budget. I mean, I suppose it's been a little bit easier this year, given so much has been uh, pre-briefed and pre-announced. Yeah, we we obviously do a lot of preparation ahead of time, but obviously things did rather change a bit, given that... Um, uh, Keir Starmer rather unfortunately tested positive for COVID just before he was set to do the the budget announcement. So Rachel Reeves had to step in and gave that speech, and I thought with, you know, I thought she did a tremendous job, especially when you consider it was with 
45 minutes notice um, gave a really strong response for Labour. Can you just take us into that room, I suppose? It was a kind of all hands to the pump. I mean, I imagine you were all kind of quite involved in, in kind of helping draft the response. But I mean, what, what, what was it like at that moment when you found out uh, Sakia had, uh, had been struck down with COVID? I mean, obviously, we've been preparing for weeks uh, in terms of our response and what we thought the government might say and how we would then respond to that. But it did come as rather of a shock to get a call to head over to the leader's office 45 minutes before uh, the budget was due to be uh, announced to the house only to discover that um, uh, Rachel was heavy in preparation for delivering that speech herself. And now, now I suppose just turning to the budget I mean I think you know one of the big pushes going into Wednesday uh, was the levelling up agenda. We found out some of the details of the levelling up fund with around I think just over half a billion going to the north around 100 million of that going to your region in the northeast. I mean, I just wondered what your assessment of the announcements uh, was. I mean, sadly, what we saw was much of, you know, a, a lot of re-announcement, which is often what the government will do. So very big on uh, promises, but not so great where it comes to actually delivering. I mean, you know, no MP will turn down money for their own constituency. And I was behind uh, the bid that Sunderland secured for £20 million going into uh, the city centre. And that's welcome, of course it is. But it's not really a substitute for addressing those wider challenges that we face within our economy. So I wanted to see a budget that dealt with those immediate cost of living pressures facing families. Did you feel like there was much kind of rhyme or reason to what areas got this levelling up funding? I mean, I think just a bit further south than you, there was a bit of questioning of how funding was allocated on Teesside with kind of one area losing out to perhaps a more affluent area and a lot of locals there kind of questioning how that was decided and, you know, what was the formula going into it? I mean, were you clear on, on how these decisions were made? I don't think there's ever been any clarity from the government as to how many of these decisions are being made. And they've got a pretty poor track record uh, where it comes to the town's fund. So I, I think we do need to have confidence and have that money is being awarded. But pots of money from Whitehall and Westminster going into the regions really isn't a substitute for having a long term plan to grow the economy. Now, of course, you know, any, any investment would be welcome. But unless we're in a position where we've got more well paid jobs, where people can keep more of what they earn uh, and where families are able to succeed, we're not going to see that growth in the regions. Uh, that need that will drive the recovery. I was also disappointed that um, we were knocked back in the northeast on the restoring our railways fund bid around the Leamside line, which would have provided, I think, a big economic boost to the region. It's got big support from business organisations, and again, the response that we've received from ministers. It's far from clear to me the basis on which that decision was taken. You mentioned railways there. Of course, that was a bit of a glare and a mission in the budget. You know, there was nothing on Northern Powerhouse Rail. There was nothing on the HS2, which, you know, many people fear the eastern leg may be scrapped in the forthcoming uh, integrated rail plan. What would your message be to the Chancellor, you know, as that as that rail plan comes down the track? You know, obviously, if, if the levelling up agenda is, is central to this government's aims and ambitions, then surely we need to see proper rail in the north. We desperately need to see better uh, connectivity and better transport links between our towns and cities right across the north. I was disappointed, however, that the Chancellor decided to prioritise a cut in air passenger duty for short haul flights when we need to make it easier for people to be getting around, particularly on by train, but also just on public transport more broadly. I mean, the government could take action right now to address lots of the problems that we face uh, around bus services. That wouldn't require billions of pounds of investment. It would be a much more straightforward change to make, but there has been a continued reluctance to take uh, the action that's needed. I mean, the Chancellor also spent an awful long time talking about alcohol duty 
and barely mentioned climate change, barely mentioned the need um, to improve transport infrastructure and transport links. And I just think that's the wrong set of priorities, not least as we're you know, approaching uh, the UK hosting uh, the COP26, COP26 summit this week. Just kind of on transport, you know, there was a lot of kind of pre-brief announcements around extra cash for a number of our northern cities for kind of improvements to intracity transport networks in Manchester, Liverpool and parts of Yorkshire. There's been a lot made of the, the fact that the North East has perhaps missed out on some of this funding because there's not yet in place a full kind of region-wide combined authority. Your opposite number, Simon Clark, made a, made hay of this uh, the day before the budget, kind of saying that it was the fault of Labour councils in the North East not getting their act together to get a proper combined authority in place. I just wondered kind of what you made of, of the debate around this, and obviously it's been ongoing for years now. Would you like to see a, a full kind of region-wide combined authority up there, and would that kind of unlock a lot of investment? I think it would be better for the region if we could pull together uh, and work together to on a region-wide basis because when you look at you know how people travel to work and where they spend their leisure time it's often right across the region you know people in Sunderland will travel to work in North Tyneside they might go and do their shopping in Durham um, that economic footprint you know we, we all we do compete I think most effectively when we pull together as a region but I just don't think it's fair for ministers just to go around blaming other people. You know, the government walked away from those talks years ago. I would like to see them back up and running so that we could do this properly. But then at the same time, it's my understanding that Durham are also considering doing their own thing. Now, of course, is their right. But I do think it would be good if we could pull together, pull together as a region. That's, again, no substitute for the government providing that wider support that's necessary in the economy. But, you know, I've always been someone that's very proud of everything that we achieve in the North East. So let's pull together and make it work. And just finally, um, I just wondered for our listeners, if you could explain, I suppose, on Wednesday, if it was yourself and your colleagues kind of set in the budget, what would be kind of some of the big key differences that people would have noticed this week? I think in the short term, the we would have done a lot more to deal with the immediate pressures that are facing families and businesses right now. So uh, we would have cut VAT on gas and electricity bills for six months because we know everything's getting more expensive for families, not least the cost of uh, heating your home. And we think the government should be doing more there. Where it comes to businesses, we think the government should have frozen and then completely overhauled business rates altogether. We need to see a much more level playing field between our online between the online tech giants and our high street family run firms because thriving high streets are really important I think particularly for many of the communities that I represent and right across the region. I think in the longer term what was missing was a plan to get our economy growing once more and part of that I think has to be connected to the need to tackle climate change. It's right that we do that, it's the biggest challenge that we face um, of our times but it also I think for our region presents a great opportunity to create um, more secure, well-paid jobs. So Labour has a pledge around our climate investment pledge, which means we would take action to create jobs, to make that change around net zero. But that would also bring down uh, energy bills for families too, because if we better insulate our homes and make them more energy efficient, then the costs will come down for families as well. Now, there are some 15 million people living in the north of England, an area covered by more than 50 town halls and authorities of various kinds, each one having their own distinct political issues. As Rishi Sunak discovered this week when he described the world-famous Burnley Market, while he was in fact standing in Berry Market, it's easy to get places mixed up. 
So we thought we'd help by bringing you some potted guides to the political issues you need to know about in the cities, towns, villages and boroughs of our diverse region. First up is Oldham, a Greater Manchester borough with a quarter of a million population. Michael Gove told Tory conference a few weeks ago in Manchester that he wanted to understand more about Oldham and towns like it so he could help them grow in the same way the city of Manchester has in recent years. So to help him along the way, let's hear from Charlotte Green, who is the local democracy reporter for Oldham, who reports every day on the issues facing the area. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. You've got five things we need to know about politics in Oldham. And the first one, I think, is that it's not as much of a Labour stronghold as people might think. Yeah, I think this is important because I think when people hear the word Oldham, they think that's just synonymous with Labour. And, you know, in the same way that I suppose Manchester is. And it's just not always been like that. And quite recently, you know, we're talking the mid 2000s. Um, it was actually a, a Liberal Democrat controlled council. And it's been in no overall control several times throughout the years. And up until about 2011, it was very much split half and half between opposition, Liberal Democrat and Conservative councillors and Labour. It's only in the last sort of 10 years, I guess, since probably since about 2011, that it became very, very strongly Labour. And what we've seen since then is that Labour has increased and increased to the point at which opposition councillors are limited to about five or seven members. And really, it's very much kind of a one party state council now, but things are potentially starting to change. And that that domination might be starting to break down in the next sort of five, 10 years. Oh, that's interesting. And I mean, that brings us to your second point, which is that Oldham has seen its fair share of political upsets over the years. Can you take us through a few of those? Historically, it was a very sort of stable place, both in its terms of it having very long serving MPs and having quite long serving council leaders. And that was true very much with its its most well-known council leader in recent years, which is Jim McMahon, who then became the MP for Oldham, West and Royton in the by-election in 2015. But he had been in control for 10, for just under 10 years, which is a long time as a council leader, given that you're quite, he was quite young. And then when he stepped down to take up the role of the Labour candidate in the by-election, he nominated his deputy, Jean Stretton, to become the council's first female council leader in in the entirety of its history. So that was a quite historic moment back in 2015. And when he was actually elected and stood down, so this is 2016. However, just two years later, she was actually deposed internally within Labour in in a coup just a few days after a very successful May local elections for the party. So it seemed quite unexpected, but within the party and within the council, there have been quite a lot of discontent about maybe she didn't have the same vision and she wasn't able to deliver some of the projects that Jim had really been heralding for the town. He had spearheaded massive multi-million plans to regenerate the town centre, bring the Odeon Cinema into the centre of Oldham and, and redo up the town hall. And it was considered that she wasn't necessarily the right person to be continuing that. So in 2018, suddenly out of nowhere, a kind of quite a, a, a very young sort of semi backbench Labour councillor called Sean Fielding gets put up into the leadership. He's 27 at the time. So he was one of the youngest council leaders in the country. And he's takes on this role as quite a dynamic leader, quite controversial in, in some of the ways he presents himself on social media and some of the things he says in the council chamber. But the, the party uh, really like him and they see him as someone who's sort of very much able to, to lift Oldham up and drive it forward. And then we jump to 
May 2021, the most recent local elections, only to find that Sean has lost his seat in Failsworth West. And that obviously, once you lose your seat as a councillor, you also lose the leadership. So suddenly, Labour's faced with a bit of a problem, which they hadn't expected, which is they're going to have to try and select their third leader in just over three years. And that's the moment that we're in now where Deputy Leader Councillor Aru Shah, who, along with Sean Fielding, was one of the, the young councillors in Oldham that was tipped to kind of go on to great things. She takes up the role as council leader. She's the second female council leader and the first Muslim female council leader in, I think, the whole of the north of England. So that's also quite a historic thing for Oldham. What, what can you tell us about the, the online conspiracy theories and uh, Oldham's answer to QAnon, the uh, quite worrying group in the, in the US? Yeah, so this has been quite a, a, re- a relatively recent but quite a murky chapter in, in Oldham's history is this rise of these very, very pervasive online conspiracy theories and how quickly they've been able to spread and disseminate within the Oldham population. And it's, I guess, arguable how much of an effect they've had in terms of tangible reality. The biggest one that people point to is that Sean Fielding himself has claimed that this QAnon-style campaign against various people within the later leadership, including him, caused him to lose his seat. He said that that was basically disinformation being spread about him, lies being spread about him on social media, caused people to vote against him. He lost by quite a small margin, but there were other factors in play. So we can't necessarily say it was down to that. However, in terms of the the trust between elected members and the trust between the council and residents, these rumours, which I'll get into in a second, have had a massive effect, I think, with that. And there's, there's sort of two main theories that are being circulated, one of which is that there is the council and councillors are being controlled by an Asian cabal made up of prominent people within the Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities in central Oldham and areas like Werneth and Hathashaw, and that they also control a lot of the, or they put in place people on the councils, kind of like placeholders. And this also leads back to allegations, widespread allegations that UKIP and Nigel Farage made about postal fraud in the 2015 by-election, which Jim McMahon won, that there was mass vote rigging going on, which was never proven, but it was got a lot of press at the time. So they've been kind of, I'd say, muddling around for a while, but it's not until the last couple of years that they've been really intensified. The second one that sort of links in with that is that there is... There are historic allegations of child sexual abuse and child sexual exploitation in the borough that have been covered up by the previous leader, Jim McMahon, and subsequent leaders and the um, actual council employees and establishment in collaboration with the police and the media. And that's, I guess, the most similar theory that we'd see in reference to the QAnon theory, which is that Democrats and various other people are covering up widespread sort of global child abuse. And while both of these theories are very, very extreme. There is a, it's mostly coming from one individual and he has actually called Roger Mir and he's managed to present it in a way where he sets himself up as a guest, almost like a, a really expert commentator. He has it so that people will sort of pay towards his investigative, investigative blog and he presents himself as sort of the true insider who knows exactly what's happening. And that has actually built up a lot of traction with people. And it's one of the main things that, although she hasn't referenced it directly, the new council leader, Aru Shah, is really trying to rebuild that relationship with residents that this social media had divide has, has caused, I think. As well as obviously dealing with those quite difficult issues, Oldham 
obviously has a, a very well-known industrial history that it's trying to sort of reinvent itself from now. And of course, you know, the quite fraught race relations o- over the years. What, 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 what's going on in terms of uh, trying to, you know, Oldham trying to reinvent itself in that context? Well, I think against the backdrop of, I guess, trying to disprove a lot of rumours and a lot of misinformation and try and rebuild trust, there's also a, a concerted drive to try and re- regenerate Oldham because it's somewhere that routinely gets put at the top of the leaderboard for all the wrong reasons. It's up there for being one of the worst places for children to grow up in, in deprivation. It's really struggled to find a modern identity after being this cotton mill industrial powerhouse, you know, in the Victorian era up until the mid 20th century, where it's really lost that identity and, and hasn't really been able to, to fi- you know, find a new way in the way that Manchester has with technology and, and being a big city of the north. So what, what leaders are trying to do now is, is, is are trying to invest in new projects in regeneration to kind of carve that new identity. They also want to stop this brain drain that's happening where, where young people grow up in Oldham, they might go to college there, they might go to Manchester University, but then they'll leave. They won't, they won't ever come, they won't come back to Oldham. So councillors are really worried that basically what you, you know, you can't, you can't push a town to move forward if, if all of its most promising people who would stay and help it develop new kind of industries then leave. So what they're trying to do is, bring a lot more attraction not just in terms of the different types of economy it can offer but for instance mass the the, the big plan is to do a lot of town center house building somewhere that Rochdale is also looking at doing not just to increase that council tax base but to really make use of the fact that Oldham is only 15 minutes on the Metrolink from Manchester that people it's really convenient to get to it's an awful lot cheaper than living in South Manchester and if they can make it a nice place to go with nice bars nice restaurants people will start to consider it as as a viable option instead of being like oh god why would you why would you want to buy a house in Oldham but they're also they've got some major regeneration projects. So, for instance, the Northern Roots idea, which kind of goes under the radar, but would be pretty big, which is a, a huge 160 acre urban park, quite pretty slap bang in the centre of Oldham, really, which is going to would be the first of its kind in the UK. And that would if that all goes ahead, that would put Oldham in the map. But they've also various other projects that have been put forward like this in the past that haven't come off so I think there is again an an issue with trust there with residents they've been promised lots of things in the past so when these huge exciting announcements get made there is always a sense of cynicism about whether they're going to go ahead. I mean, it's interesting talking about the uh, Oldham's attempts to get you know get younger people to 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 live there and sort of uh, trying to boost regeneration and and you know given the the race relation issues that the town has got in some ways it's a bit similar to perhaps Keighley in West Yorkshire or maybe Rotherham in South Yorkshire that has a big city neighbour that kind of dominates the local economy and and like those areas Oldham is defined by austerity to some extent isn't it but it's also falling under the spell of the Conservatives is that right? Definitely more so what we've seen is that in the most recent local elections Labour lost six seats several of its councillors were actually not re-elected and then several seats which it had held, which it was hoping to keep. It also lost, and it lost them to a mix of either conservatives or new independent but right-leaning candidates. And if we look at the 2019 general election, when I went out in Oldham and I spoke to people, they were very anti-Labour generally, both sort of nationally, but very much locally. And that's a problem that Labour have. They can't convince people locally that 
a lot of the problems that they have in terms of how does a council deliver the same services are because of the cuts coming from central government to local government. It's very hard to explain to people that. And as much as, as Labour and Oldham say that they've lost more than £200 million since 2010 in cuts to their budget, they can't in the same, that doesn't really to people justify why their bins aren't being collected, why fly tipping is still over the streets. And what we've, what I saw when I spoke to people in, in 2019 was that they, they raised a lot of these issues locally, but they were looking to the government, the Conservative government, to change that. So they had, there were people saying that for the first time in their entire lives, having been lifelong Labour voters, they were thinking that Boris Johnson was a, a viable option, which I just don't think is something we'd have ever seen 10 years ago, for instance. Maybe the people are becoming just much more pragmatic in the sense that they're thinking, well, if Labour, ideologically, I'm Labour, but if they can't deliver the services that I want, maybe we'd be better off having a Conservative council because we'd get a better deal under a Conservative government. Potentially, we're moving towards more of a, a, a politics of pragmatism amongst people, that they just want good local services. And really, who you vote for in your, in your local elections doesn't really affect that too much if, as a council, you can't stop those cuts coming down from central government. And I think the other thing, obviously, the other big issue in Oldham is Brexit. Oldham was very much, you know, percentage-wise on the Leave side, and the, the current council, the, the current Labour-led council, definitely at the time and since then, I would say have been quite pro-EU. So there is also that disconnect as well between people thinking, well, I'm a Labour Brexit voter and I'm not, re- not represented locally. So they can lean more towards Brexiteers within the Tories. It's uh, fascinating just how, you know, there's a lot of things that you've described there, which, which are very similar to what's going on in other parts of the North. But Oldham also has its, its quite distinct political issues as well. So, Charlotte, thank you so much for that. That was I, I learned a lot from that uh, that 15 minutes uh, part of history of what's going on in, in Oldham. And we will be finding out more about another area of the North next week. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one. See you next week. There's a shadow hanging over Lee. For the past 36 years, a murder has loomed in the memories of this small mill town near Wigan. This is the story of a young girl robbed of her life one winter night in 1984. This is the story of a murder that still remains unsolved today. This is the story of a case that has haunted my career. My name is Neil Keeling, and this is Testimony. I think Lisa's killer was infatuated with her. Where Lisa lives, I believe that's where the killer will be from. She wouldn't have, if somebody had shouted her, she'd have had to know them to go anywhere near that box. She wouldn't have took a shortcut. But while we were all at home safe, less than two minutes from our door. My best friend was fighting for a life and we hadn't got a clue. And if we had a clue, 
She must be its My gut instinct is that the person who, who murdered Lisa must have been local, must have known the area, and must have known, you know, this back entry gill that uh, afforded some degree of seclusion for him to drag Lisa down and murder. I'm convinced even after over 30 years, he will be caught. And I'm telling you, I'm not having it that someone doesn't know who the, who the person is who, who killed Lisa Hessian. If I'm right, then, then the person shielded him is just as guilty. There's no one left to fight for justice for Lisa Hessian except Greater Manchester Police's cold case unit and journalists like me. I haven't given up and I hope that one day they will find the man who murdered Lisa Hessian. <laughs>